This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodi. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. David Perodin. And welcome to this episode of the Safety Doc Podcast. I actually debated doing this episode with my winter coat on. It's chilly down here in the North Star Studio. Temperature currently a brisk 58 degrees. Today's episode will focus on the 75% of the world which does not have an address. And there's a technology that's emerged. What three words? And it's taken the surface of the world, has divided it into three meter by three meter squares, and has identified three words. So you can identify any location by three words. This is significant for safety in so many regards. For schools, reunification sites, For emergency responders, if you're out in a woods or if you're just coming to an address, but it might be like a 500-acre farm or something like that, where to specifically go? So, so many benefits to this technology. I want to get into it today. I learned about it just recently, and I think the impact that this is going to have, especially on school safety, will be tremendous. So right now, I am in the midst of the finishing touches for my manuscript, Lessons of Lore Manhattan, which talks about the rescue of 500,000 people from Lore Manhattan in nine hours on September 11th, 2000 by one. And this was all done by boat in the harbor. How did that happen? Why did it happen? What were the psychological factors that made that possible? And what were the six essential lessons we learned from that that we can then take into the school safety environment. That will be submitted on January 31st. This is the final rewrite version and then should be going to print early this spring. So very excited and we'll focus a number of shows on that. Um, I've already been asked to be on several shows to talk about Lessons of Lore Manhattan. So I was working last night on chapter 30, and in front of me, I have chapter 30. So uh, this piece of chapter 30 and this piece of chapter 30, and it's kind of falling down like confetti. And I broke it into subheadings um, and laid it all out. I I took the entire chapter and (laughs) cut out different sections, laid it out on my kitchen table, and then developed um, new headings and reorganized it. And that's sometimes the way that it works when you're putting together a book. Um, Worked with a friend who did a reread on the introduction, which I had modified a few times. Um, He had some suggestions for taking that uh, part, putting it back together in a different way. So it's exciting. Um, And there is a point, of course, with any work, when you have to stop and say, this is what it's going to be. Um, so it is it is a fascinating process right now. Um, collaborating with my editor, we're 
seeing the same things. Actually, we were editing simultaneously a paragraph, and and it was just amazing how uh, we kind of had this mind meld going on right now. So um, I'm feeling really great about it, and again, we'll we'll talk about it. First, a shout out to the 405media.com, the 405media out of Los Angeles, California, a supporter of the Safety Doc podcast. You can listen to the Safety Doc podcast on the 405 Media 2 p.m. PST daily, Monday through Saturday. So many other terrific shows on the 405 Media. Just check out the lineup at the405media.com. One show you'll find is the Clary Podcast. My friend Aaron Clary and the Clary Podcast follows the Safety Doc Podcast. You've got back-to-back power hours there at 2 and 3 p.m. PST, the405media.com. Also, a shout-out to Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, Sprigio.com, the nation's leader in school safety threat reporting software, Sprigio.com. So let's talk about, uh, you know, we are in Wisconsin, as in we, as in me. We don't have snow. It's no no, no snow winter. So we're third through January and we don't have snow outside. We've had a couple small snows, but it's warmed. Snow's melted. It's cold today. It's going to be cold over the weekend, 14, both on Saturday and Sunday, but no snow. So extremely strange. We've had moisture. We've had precipitation. We've had rain, but we just haven't had snow. And the snow that we did have lasted a few days the kids went crazy on the sledding hill, then it's gone. But right now, my lawn looks like it would in late March. You know, partially green, not really growing, but it is definitely a different winter here in Wisconsin. I have a friend, um, well, Aaron Clary of the Clary Podcast, who has a home in Las Vegas was talking with Aaron last night, and he was sharing. It was in the 60s, and he was enjoying time out on the golf course, 18 holes. So um, he does have the invitation for me to come down and meet up with him and go and see what I can do on the, on the golf course. It's been a while, but uh, I do need to take him up on that offer because – I'm just not a cold-weather person. I think I've shared that before. Grew up in Wisconsin, but no, I'm not a cold-weather person. We'll stock my fireplace with wood throughout the night, and every time I come down and take wood out of the fireplace room, I also have my bike stored in there. So a little bit of sadness. I want to be out riding, but uh, let's talk about what three words. So you actually type that in. W-H-A-T, the numeral three, W-O-R-D-S. What three words? What three words.com. You can find the website. They're out of Great Britain, but they spread around the world. And this is a absolutely fascinating company. So right here, originally from the music industry, what three words CEO Chris Sheldrake identified the need for a better addressing system after bands and equipment constantly kept getting lost. So it was in March of 2013, he paired with a another um, person with expertise in the geospatial um, industry, and they came up with what three words and have rapidly scaled that since then. So I'm going to just pause at this point because I will be interviewing um, somebody from What Three Words next week. And we had to coordinate because it's Great Britain and it's Central Time United States the day we were going to do this and also the time. So we one of us wouldn't have to be recording at two in the morning. So I'm looking forward to that. This is the lead up. And really when I, when I have that uh, live recording for the podcast, I'm going to have them give the many examples of when they've used the software specifically for safety 
and where they see the software in the future. Because I, I have some areas I think that it will go into. I know some things that they've already worked on. It's very much incorporated into the Netherlands response, safety response system. So I want to get a feel for what the future is for what three words. So years ago, I was trained as a firefighter and then actually went through a second um, training to maintain my certification. And I aced the classroom work. I was very good when we actually had to go out and you know do the field um, competencies also, but the classroom aced it. But w- except one part, and that was the Platt book, P-L-A-T, the Platt book. Basically, it's like a map. Um, and it's, but, you know, it's just pages and pages in a book, and it ba- would break up sections of land into quadrants. And this was useful if you had a fire, a, a wildfire, and you had to find out where you were going to access a road and then how far you'd have to walk in and what rivers, what water sources might be nearby. Things that typically don't have an address, right? So um, I struggled greatly at being able to read um, a plat book. I, I, I never, ever mastered that. <laughs> so the test would come back and I would do great on everything and then struggle on the plat book. It was just, it wasn't intuitive. Um, it was very difficult for me to look at that and then try to translate that into the environment that we were approaching, for example, with the, the fire apparatus. So you have these plat books in the, the old days, um, and those things were around for maybe 100 years. And they're still there in some form, although we've experienced a lot of shifts in crisis response just in the last decade. Things that have kind of um, put the plat book away for good. So let's talk about that. Um, search dogs. I had Jennifer Fritton on one of the first shows of the Safety Doc podcast, and she uh, had a search dog serenade and talked about being called in for missing persons. And so, you know, we had maybe, again, a century of search dogs and search dog teams um, really being augmented now by drones and maybe at some time being replaced by drones. Of course, dogs have an ability um, to identify scents that we, we can't replicate right now uh, with other equipment, but we're definitely seeing this evolution of rescue, especially for missing persons, um, incorporate drones because we can quickly cover a lot of area and we have forward-looking infrared so you can get the heat signature uh, things that, you know, if you were to call in search dogs, it takes time. The handler has to leave typically their work site. They have to go home. They have to prepare the dog. They probably have, you know, a go bag ready to go, but maybe they have to drive two hours. They have to meet up with their team. They have to get debriefed. Where if you have a drone um, and you can get that drone up in the air within a few minutes, the person isn't going to be able to go that far. So you're going to be able to cover that distance in a drone, have a better likelihood of finding them. So we're seeing that right now, that drones have become kind of the the initial phase in search and rescue, and then augmented by search dogs. And at some point, depending upon, you know, when we reach this, this cross in technology, I think that's all going to be automated. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen.
now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. So we talked about the plat book that gave me headaches, made me pull my hair out, made me crazy on my firefighting exams. They're a thing of the past for the most part. It's all become digital, and the maps have been downloaded. So even if the power goes out, even if you don't have access to cellular systems, you still can ping to a satellite and can still access the map um, on your phone or mobile device. So geospatial addressing and maps, people think about Google Maps of, I can type in an address on a Google map and or or coordinates, you know, longitude and latitude, and, and I can find a location. And you can do that. If you type in an address, though, it'll bring you to, for example, the front of my house. The problem with that is that's only precise to a certain level. Let's say that I lived on a... 500 acre farm. So this was the address. You wouldn't know outside of maybe, you know, like here's the house, what other area specifically you would need to go to for a rescue. You would be able to identify those with the What Three Words app because remember, it's taking a three by three, three meter by three meter square all across the entire world. And it has assigned a three-word identification to that square. So um, as long as you have that, you can get somebody within that three-by-three space. So we're talking 20 um, or three-by-three meters. So we're talking um, three meters, which would be roughly nine feet, nine-by-nine feet, or 81 feet, basically the size of a a dorm room is, is this block. Size, size of a college dorm room, at least when I went to college. Um, so you're going to get someone right to that location. So what three words is a global addressing system. It has divided the world into these three by three grids. It's very precise. It's easy to talk about, again, because you're going to have three words that are specific to that location. I'm going to give you a couple examples here in a minute. And those words never change. Even if that location, a different house gets built, if it becomes a field, if there is some massive, um, you know, wildfire, which eliminates the roads and identifiable landmarks, you can still know exactly where you're at with the What Three Words app, which is a free app. So imagine that. Um, It's going to be the same 10 years from now that, that it is right now. It also has this cool feature where you can have it in your native language. Um, you know, we could have it in the United States in English, um, or you could could have everything can be mapped out in, in different, has been mapped out in different languages. So you could switch to, you know, a native language. If I go to a, you know, a different country, it could be, it, it would be in their language, but I could also have it. So that three by three um, area shows up in English. So it has this universal access, which is incredible. Let's talk about access, universal access, accessibility design. This was created with universal design in mind because we think about memory, talked about positive recency, the Monte Carlo effect, all of those types of things. But um, we know that you can't remember that many numbers and they broke up phone numbers. So they had one, two, three, dash, and then the four, so you could remember it. Um, But you can't remember if somebody just throws you an address or if they're throwing you coordinates or, you know, whatever. That's too much information, especially in a crisis situation. But if they give you three words and the words are designed to be unrelated, um, if you can memorize those three words, keep those three words, it streamlines the process. Words are better than numbers. We're going to talk about that. So um, here's an example. So it goes stout.slice.scorecard. 
And if you brought that up, that would actually bring you to a section of a pier that leads to a house. Okay. So if somebody had collapsed in that location, um, you could identify specifically where they were at. If a first responder is getting there and they need to, you know, get down a hill uh, with a stretcher and equipment and, and whatever, they know exactly where this location is. You can also give a three-word address to an item. So let's talk about when that would make sense. Well, how about fire hydrants? Just in the last couple of years, the fire departments have started these pizza runs. I talked about this before, but it's a couple days a year when the fire department will partner up with local pizzerias and they will deliver pizzas in the community. Um, it's done as a fund fundraiser, but the other part is so the firefighters become familiar with the roads in the community and then also identify the fire hydrants. So every time they make a delivery of a pizza, they have to identify the fire hydrants that they are passing. So again, it's this fun way to have the fire department interact with the community in what is also a training activity. But what if you took what three words and identified every single fire hydrant in your city and you could immediately have that identified with that three word code, which is already assigned to that area. So instead of saying, well, it is over on Oak Ridge and it's up about 40 feet and whatever, whatever it is, boom, it takes you right to that location. So it's amazing. So, geo, so the geospatial industry or this addressing industry, you can imagine with Amazon and with sending out packages and the postal service, um, the importance of knowing where you are delivering things. And remember, 75% of the world doesn't even have an address, you know, for for countries, um, for government land and, and, and things like that. But I mean, if you are talking about areas like Haiti, this is incredibly, incredibly helpful in rural parts, for example, of the United States. So we will see an integration of uh, this software with the Postal Service, with UPS, with FedEx, with Amazon before long, if it hasn't happened already. So I'll talk about that um, when I do the interview. So the geospatial industry is a $150 billion a year industry worldwide, $150 billion. I talked about school safety in my book in the United States as being a $3 billion industry, and that's, that's grown to be a $3 billion industry of, of selling bulletproof glass and um, metal detectors and things like that. And that number is pretty shocking. But here we look at $150 billion. Again, we're talking worldwide, but um, the geospatial industry is wide open for enhancements. And just imagine if you had an increase of reliability in delivering packages by even 5% or if things were 5% faster. Um, it is absolutely attainable by using what three words. And by the way, I'm not being paid by what three words to um, promote the product at all. Um, nothing like that. I just, I'm looking at this, I'm saying this is another step forward in safety. And I wanna specifically, specifically talk about how this will impact school safety. So let us move on. Dun, 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 dun. So we talked about the, um, the, the Netherlands and also the United Nations uses this app for uh, emergency response. So it's already widely integrated into the Netherlands system. Um, I want to go back into you know, why words beat numbers. So if I'm giving you three words, um, which I had just given before, stout slice scorecard. 
Okay, you can remember that. Stout slice scorecard. All right, stout slice scorecard. Um, words beat numbers. Using words means that non-technical people can discover and understand a three-word address more easily than a postcode or GPS coordinates. Imagine that. You're trying to type in GPS coordinates into your device. Um, good luck with that. Or even like addresses or the intersection of whatever street and whatever street. Well, maybe that has changed. The streets have been renamed, relabeled. Um, maybe there isn't access to those those streets. So it is. It's really um, just again words beat numbers. Stout slice scorecard. So this is always consistent addressing. Amazing when I thought about you know the fact of how much our world has changed in the last hundred years. Um, how much my community has changed since I've moved here in 2002. It's like, well, you know, where the Walgreens was, that used to be a bowling alley and it used to be whatever. And, you know, they tore that down. And and so no matter what happens to the land, the code will still identify it. That's not going to change. If you have a massive tornado, if you have that devastates a town, like in Joplin, Missouri, just, just completely wipes it out, um, the 2000... 11 tornado went through, just just devastated this town of 50,000, where it was very difficult to tell what were roads and and everything was all strewn um, with debris. So this would immediately help you get your bearings when what you expect to be familiar is in, as far as roads, street signs, things like that, all gone. Okay, and again at night, you know, trying to identify by landmarks so much more difficult. So I'm gonna throw um, something else out there. Cave.arrive.rider. It's probably a place you wouldn't mind being right now because if you were there, that, my friends, is 81 feet of Sandy Beach in Los Angeles. So cave.arrive.rider. But imagine, again, you have this whole beach area. Somebody is having a medical event. You need to have emergency resources there. You have that specific location, cave.arrive.rider. As far as universal access for um, safety equipment, it's often been created without considerations for ADA, leaving people with disabilities kind of out of the mix as it's been formulated and then uh, never seeking their input um, and just not accessible. So if you're visually impaired, it's not accessible. Um, So these are changes that that are just uh, incredible because this has voice voice input. this also is with all of your wearable devices now, like with you know the watches and things like that. It's compatible. It's compatible with drones. That's been a struggle just in the last two, three years of having software that's compatible with drones and even drones being able to communicate with each other. But now you have a system which is fully compatible with drones, compatible social media. So this has incredible interface capabilities. And it's exciting because I, th- I think software designed, you know, like the 2013 and later really understood that this was the way to design, this universal design for access um, of using the, the phones, of having, you know, the, the voice input, the wearable devices and, and everything like that. And we're really seeing technology now that has removed barriers for, you know, so for people with disabilities, people with with, um, language um, disabilities, it has really come in, uh, people with memory recall, things like that. This has really been a plus. So what three words? Um, Remember I talked about how if if I took a trip to like China, um, what three words, how that system would work like um, in that setting. So three-word address today will still be the same 10 years from now. So that cave.rider or cave 
cave.arrive.rider. Cave.arrive.rider would be still that plot of beach in Los Angeles. Um, so the square size, you know, it's consistent around the, the globe. It eliminates the need to switch between addressing formats or coordinate systems based on a country or industry sector. So it's standardized. It's amazing, folks. It is amazing. So I'm excited about this. I actually modified um, a chapter in my book to include a small section about how this type of geospatial addressing software will revolutionize the way that uh, reunification is done in school disaster situations. So let's talk about that right now. So schools put a lot of time into reunification in their safety plans. I argue they don't need to be doing that. It's, um, it's just not a productive investment of resources of saying, if we need to evacuate the middle school or if we need to evacuate the high school, our evacuation site will be the church three blocks away or will be whatever. Um, and there is so much work that goes into finding these locations and you have to have a set of keys to get to the location and do you stock this was a school district I had worked with and they questioned do we stock it with food like MRE type things like you know meals ready to eat and extra blankets and stuff like that in case we had to go there they've never evacuated ever but I mean there could be a time right so they were going through all of this and they were so caught up in it. And I had to sit back and say, well, listen, you'd also have the Red Cross involved in you know, rescue situations. If you're stocking these places with you know, meals and things like that, you're going to have to make sure that you are checking and monitoring those um, so they are consumed before they you know, expire. And I said, I just, I, I, I just see this as so low probability. But here's the other part. Here's the other part. Um, you don't know what will be the reunification site. That's, that's not determined ahead of time. Okay. Well, you can determine it ahead of time, um, but often you'll be wrong because the fire department, the police, depending upon the situation, uh, might say that the working perimeter around the location around the school you know you thought it was going to be two blocks and maybe that's what the fire department anticipated when they met with you or somebody 10 12 years ago in the organization to come up with a reunification site said yeah no matter what it would be maybe like you know if you got beyond two blocks that would be reasonable to start looking for your reunification site Today it's larger. Like we just know the the reunification site is going to be six blocks out, eight blocks out. Might be even more. I mean, there might be a mass evacuation. Um, For example, if there's a fire at a chemical plant or something like that. So to practice and drill and have this specific location that then you have to abandon confuses people because they think we should be going to this location. So do they start departing to that location during the um, disaster evacuation? Instead of waiting at their location, do they do you all of a sudden realize, oh my goodness, like this class already started going to wherever and they can't be there because that is within the perimeter. So now we've got to figure out how to get them away from there and to the actual reunification site. And, and I mean, it can get really complicated. Think about parents. If you've identified a reunification site ahead of time and you have a sentinel event happen at a school, like a school shooting, parents are going to um, race to the school. They're going to race to other school buildings. Also, if they have children located at those locations, but they will also race to the unification site, the reunification site. So, There are many reasons to not identify a reunification site ahead of time. This comes in as what is known as working the problem, Apollo 13. 
is an example of working the problem. You don't anticipate ahead of time of what's that, that scenario is going to happen. And when it happens, you have to say, here's what we know, here's the situation, here's the resources we have, and then we have to work the problem to come to a solution. That's what law enforcement and responders will do in a crisis situation. They're going to work the problem, they're gonna to come to a solution, they will identify an evacuation site which is beyond the perimeter and also probably that could be readily accessed, for example, by parents, they will identify that. It's not going to take them more than a few minutes to identify. This is what we are going to establish for a perimeter. And here is the area that we are going to use for a reunification site. And once that is done, if you have a... Um, W3W code, okay, what three words, if you have your what three words code, it can be assigned that specific reunification site. Well, it's already assigned, but you can say right here, this set of doors on this building has this code to it, okay? And that's where we want people to go. Again, this will become fairly ubiquitous. This, The app is free. This will be incorporated into GPS systems. We're just this will become very familiar. Like in five years from now, anybody listening to this or reading the blog post will be like, "Yes, um, yeah, I totally am familiar with that technology." So, but imagine you have two situations here. One is if you give an address, you can enter coordinates and you can get to an address, but that still doesn't tell you what set of doors to go in. What if it's a really big building and you're parked in a certain area? And you would assume there's gonna be people there to maybe help guide you to where you need to go, but that might not be the case at all. So you can identify a specific set of doors that you want parents or guardians to arrive at as this reunification process is underway. This is actually the number one way that I believe this software will impact, positively impact, school safety. And if you can wipe that section out of your planning that is reunification um, and, and finding sites and maintaining sites, if you can get rid of that altogether and save that time and, and tell parents ahead of time, this is where I advocate for all schools should do a start of school um, evening meeting where they invite parents in the community. Um, record it so it's available. Put it on your website for the induction process. Um, but you, you talk about the core um, things that your school would do in the event of a, a school shooting, um, if it was a, a tornado, you know, whatever weather-related event, but just saying, here's what we would do. Now, not to a specific level where you're basically giving your playbook out to everybody in the audience, and this isn't also an opportunity for audience participation saying, well, I think you should do it this way. That's like a different meeting. That's more focus, group advisory committee things to um, to work through stuff like that. This is basically saying, here's what we know. If there is a school shooting, um, parents typically will race to the school in that um, congests, adds to congestion of the roads near the school, uh, makes it harder for responders to get there. We want responders, obviously, to, to be able to access the, the site. Um, so you are not going to be allowed into the school to pick up your child um, anyway. There will be a, a hard perimeter that police will set up very close, and then that perimeter will be pushed out. But um, please do not race to the scene. Please do not race to the scene. We will give you updates. Um, every so many minutes, you'll have regular updates from the school. It'll come out on the website of how to get those updates, whether it's going to be through the um, text messaging system, plus on the school website, plus through media, but we will have this. You'll have regular updates. Um, 
we will identify an area that you can go for staging, a, a weight area, which might not be their unification area, but maybe that there is an area they, they identify and we'll say, you know, you, you can go there. And then the reunification site, we will let you know specifically where that site will be and where you need to go. Um, like again, that what set of doors, but we are not going to know any of this until we are working the problem. We're working the problem. We will get this information out to you. We also ask, for example, that you um, don't stream, you know, the events and, and as you're coming into facilities for unification to, you know, pick up your children and things like that, we would ask for confidentiality, a call for decency, basic human decency. Um, you can't, you know, restrict somebody from recording behind a perimeter. But I think ahead of time, if you can talk to people about this, say, you know, what you're going to do is just bring more people into that setting. And this is also a very sensitive situation because people feel they need to record, they need to take pictures, they need to archive. So you talk about that at the beginning. And then if something happens, people remember, yeah, it's not going to help if I drive toward the school. You'll still have some people who will do that. You'll have some people though who won't. You will have people who will be expecting a communication from the school on a staging location and a possible reunification site if that's warranted. So people will remain calm. They will, th this is how this works actually. Um, if you tell people ahead of time what to expect and pretty close to that is what you're delivering um, it's called the transference dynamic. I talk about it in my book, Lessons of Lower Manhattan, and it works. It's very effective. So that's what I would encourage. Also, so I talked about how this is going to have a massive benefit for a re reunification site. Another area is going to be mapping a school campus. Think about how this could have benefited the response in 1999 to the Columbine High School shooting. So instead of having just an address of having the school, you know every area of that school campus, every 81 foot square. So a huge benefit. Now we do label entrances to schools and things like that, but what about you know playgrounds and parking lots and things like that? We can get very specific um, by using this type of system. And then also, as we are navigating first responders, police into the scene, um, we know exactly where to pinpoint those individuals and then also where to pinpoint other assets coming into the scene to support that situation. So I will have um, the representative from What Three Words specifically talk about that. Um, again, these are early ways that I see the software integrating into school safety in the United States. But immediately, if this can be a software to identify the reunification site, it simplifies, it simplifies the burden that is put on the school safety coordinator of keeping the safety plans up to date and keeping these re reunification sites um, up to date, whether it be with, with supplies, goods, making sure that the keys still work. Hey, it's been sold to somebody else. So now it has a different set of keys and you have to make sure that they're in agreement um, with using it as a site. And again, um, this will come together. These things do come together, part of working the problem. So um, what three words claims, and I do believe them, um, that it, it will always be free for individuals to use um, and uh, the, the apps will be free. They do have paid versions of this, obviously, if you're delivering um, products and things like that. They also do have a free usage plan for nonprofits. So I'll, I'll ask more about that because we have had K, um, Cajun Navy Relief and Triton Relief's Katie Pashan on the Safety Doc Show talking about rescues following hurricanes and how the 501c3s 
are involved in that. So I did send a message out to Katie asking if she was aware of the What Three Words app um, and just the whole service provided by What Three Words. Have not heard back from her yet, um, but it seems like that would make sense that that would be something she would be interfacing with um, in the rescue dispatching that she does right now with Triton Relief Group. So as we close out this episode of the Safety Doc podcast, um, I want to go over some of the parts of Lessons of Lore Manhattan, which will be released this spring. Um, it is going to be through Publishing House, Roman, and Littlefield. Here we go. Um, Lessons of Lore Manhattan. I'm going to move it over here. There we go. Um, the manuscript will be about, it will, the book will be about 200 pages. Um, it is spot on if you are a school administrator or a parent wants to understand more about school safety and really the interworkings of the school safety industry. Um, there is this belief that you can fortify your way to safety, which I challenge in the book uh, because I do not adhere to that belief. Um, one of the examples in, in the book was that um, schools could could you know protect themselves from um, car attacks, or you know basically having a car you know run over students or ram into the front doors and into a school building uh, by putting up bollards, which um, you know they have a metal casing and then they're filled with concrete and you've seen them for years in front of um, things that you don't want hit like you know, gas meters, you want to have those protected and so nobody accidentally backs into them. And they'll put them in front of buildings uh, where heavy uh, machinery, like fire departments will off, often have them in. So if you're backing up, um, it's better to tap into a bullard than it is to, you know, knock out the side of the garage um, entrance. So those have specific purposes. Um, uh in those aspects. But when I'm referring to bullards in the school environment, they're being put up all over the place um, in front of schools on, you know, school sidewalks. And we're not seeing attacks where people are taking cars up and down school sidewalks. And we're not seeing people smashing through the front door of schools to attack children. So we talk about bullards and I found in my research a very fascinating article. It was uh, written by Pete Medic. It talked about M-E-D-E-K. Talked about trail bullard hazards. Trail bullard hazards. And he's a bicyclist and wrote about, in, in the United States, the number of deaths and maiming caused by bicyclists um, running into bullards on trails an experienced bicyclist. He's had his own uh, close calls. He's talked about friends who've lost their lives and also said this is really underreported stuff. Um, so you would think, um, wow, that's that's why, why is that happening? But it actually, it's very hard to judge distance. I've known, I've experienced this myself as a, as a bicyclist um, going past bullards on trails. And for example, if you're going out and you pass 30 of them and you're coming back, you have to pass those 30 one more time. But you might say, well, if they're in front of you and you see them, why can't you get out of the way? Well, the problem is sometimes there are people in front of you. So you're, you don't see the bullard. You just assume that the trail is going to be open, like when they pass. Um, and suddenly they move aside or a different bicyclist moves aside and boom, there the bullard is. And you have very little time to respond. Now, it's not only bicyclists. This happens to rollerbladers. It also happens in races where people are running and they're behind somebody else and they're going down a path that has a bullard, you know, and they don't see it in time and they run into it. Um, uh, and again, it can cause serious injury, has caused deaths. 
So we talk about bollards. And in Wisconsin, bollards in front of schools. Well, in winter, when we do have snow, you have to remove the snow. It's hard to get the snow away from these things, so it tends to ice up, um, tends to drift. They also tend to cast you know, shadows, so the shadows can be areas that get icy. So you have a whole bunch of problems here which are created by implementing something to solve a problem which really wasn't a problem, meaning the problem of, of cars going up onto the walkways and slamming into schools. So, but now you have genuine problems with people with wheelchairs, um, people having to deal with icy pavement because you haven't been able to clean off the um, cement as well as you could if the bowlers weren't there. If you have a lot of people and someone is in front of them and they move to the side, you could end up running into a bollard. Um, and if you're going at a faster pace, it could cause some serious damage. So again, the trail bollard hazard. There was a study from the, the um, National Transportation uh, Association um, highways, and I cited it in my, in my book, Lessons of Lower Manhattan. And specifically, it was talking about how this is underreported and it is becoming a more significantly recognized issue bollards. And we're not even talking bollards for school safety, just in general, like on paths and, and bike and walkways and stuff like that. And this is something where when you install a bollard, uh, that's very invasive. I mean, you're drilling down, you're sinking it into concrete. So to remove a camera from a school, for example, um, doesn't take long. Uh, to remove a bollard from in front of a school can be a massive, expensive process. Um, so how do you get these things out? They're less expensive to put in often than they are to take out. So you also have an issue of putting something in that's a, fort a fortification that is not easy to remove. So some other uh, questions and points that came up as I was going through. So what I did is, is I wrote down, um, so far I have 33 kind of either points I learned or questions uh, that have been surfaced by the book. And I'll probably have a few more. And then I've got headings where I'll put these underneath. And basically these are for interviews. When people talk about the book, I'll get this out ahead of time. So they specifically can ask um, some questions. For example, like a question, hey, chaos seems like that would be something we would want to avoid, but you're saying that um, chaos and often more chaos is good during a crisis situation. So explain that. Yeah, okay, I can tell you about that. Um, another thing that I, I have in my question set and I emphasize in the book is this approach of accepting suboptimal outcomes um, to get eventually to what would be your optimal outcome. Here's an example. So you wanna fly from here. Um, I wanna fly right now to California. I wanna fly out to Los Angeles. So I wanna fly from Madison, Wisconsin to Los Angeles. And I realize that um, when I get to, for example, Chicago, so my, my first stop, um, there's a cancellation because of weather and I can't go from Chicago out to Los Angeles. Okay, but I'm told you can go to Dallas and from Dallas you can go to Phoenix and from Phoenix you can then go up to Los Angeles. Okay, well that works. So though now there's a whole bunch of suboptimal outcomes like uh, do I decide to go down to Dallas? It's gonna. This will take me longer, and it's not a guarantee that you know the the next option will be there. But I think it's going to get me closer to my optimal outcome, which is Los Angeles. So it's this being flexible. And if everything gets crazy, it's like, well, maybe we can take you from Phoenix, and then we can land at Bakersfield, and from Bakersfield you can take a bus to Los Angeles. The bus will take you four hours, but this plan will work. It'll get you to where you need to go. Would you do it? I don't know. You know, you might if it if it works out for you. 
But definitely going to Bakersfield will be a suboptimal outcome, but it gets you closer to your optimal outcome. You have to weigh that. And then the bus, you know, you have to transfer your luggage. It's a longer ride. The bus isn't probably as convenient as as the plane is. Um, but again, do you, do you weigh it? Weigh it out. Um, it's going to get you closer. It's going to take four hours of your time, though. So this whole thing of suboptimal optimal outcomes is very important because we tend to seek the immediate optimal outcome. So basically being so linear that we think everything that happens has the one accepted reaction or response. Um, and we don't realize there's many different ways to kind of get to this desired outcome. So that's my, that's my point with talking about suboptimal outcomes. So just imagine as we get software like this, we're also going to know much more um, about where we are relative to other areas in our environment. It's going to help us navigate um, better too. So as we wind up the show, again, an appreciation out to everybody who has been terrific to work with on Lessons Allure Manhattan. Yvette Claire Jean with the New York City Department of Planning, oh my goodness, would contact me at night, at night. So I am central time. So if I get contacted by seven um, from her, it's, she's in New York. So, you know, it's eight o'clock their time um, saying, is this what you need? Check your email. I just sent over some images. I just sent over some reports. Um, I'd requested permission to use different things going through that process, having the permission granted to use those, those different resources within the book, um, still owned of course, by New York city, but permission given to use in the book. They were phenomenal to work with the people willing to do read throughs of the book, Dr. Paul Rapp, head of military medicine. I sent Dr. Rapp a, a section of maybe 40 pages that talked about chaos and simulated annealing. And he is the expert in these areas, you know, Nova specials. And, and but he has been um, so giving of his time and energy and suggestions. Um, I, I sent this and said, if you have an opportunity in the next, you know, seven to 10 days to look over this, these specific points, I'd like your opinion if the way that I'm representing this is aligned to your interpretation or if it's something I'm different, something I can look at, some other research you can steer me to. And literally, I'd get up in the morning at five o'clock and I'd check and I'd already have a message in my inbox. And it'd be from Paul and he'd say, hey, I read everything, um, this, 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 and this, a little bit of outline Excellent, excellent, excellent. Here's some ideas. I would move this to this. I'd move this. I would. I think your interpretation here, I would modify a little bit to this. And here's like another study that you probably want to read through because it will give you more depth into this section. And I'm like, you've had this for like eight hours. <laughs> and like you are the head of medicine, you know, the head of military um, medicine. So thank you. The people out there that are so giving. Sermon short because the parish leaves towards born on Sunday morning. Go to the snow side by each only in a row. Drive down to Lambo Park the Pinto. Fire up the rubber in any kind of weather. Pop a beer and eat a deer. Then have a broad and sour song. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotti.
Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.